right, well, church family, it is a honor and a privilege um, to stand before you this morning and to bring God's word to you. Uh, just so you know, we'll be in Ephesians chapter two. We'll be looking at a passage, um, verses one through 10. Uh, I can tell you that this is probably one of my favorite passages of scripture because in the tool belt of evangelism, the greatest tool that we have is our testimony. The, the story of what God has done for us. And I'm sure many of you in here probably have a similar testimony to myself. You were born and raised in the church, you grew up in the church, and you've pretty much known Christ your entire life. Uh, he saved you at some point in there, you were baptized, and you've been walking with him ever since. Some of you might have a more extreme or different testimony. And sometimes people like me, we like to compare our testimony to someone who might have a little more interesting testimony and say, man, well, my testimony is boring. You know, I don't have anything exciting that happened in my life. But what we're about to look at in Ephesians chapter two shows us the testimony of every single believer that has ever lived. And we're really gonna take a look and we're gonna break it up into three parts. We're gonna see that Jesus saving someone, no matter the circumstances of their life, Jesus saving something is something to be celebrated and is something that is not boring or ordinary. Amen. It is not, it is, it is a miracle, it is a work of God. So as we walk through these verses, know that whether you come from an extreme situation that Christ plucked you out of and he saved you, or you have been born and raised in the church, know that the testimony of your life is important and can be used to further the kingdom of God. So as we jump into this passage, if you are willing and able, if you would stand in reverence of God's word, we're gonna read through it, and then we're gonna break it down. So starting in, verse, uh, in chapter two, verse one, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are, you are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us, with him in the heavens in Jesus Christ, so that in the coming ages he might display his immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift. Not from works, so that no one can boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. You may be seated church family, let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel. God, we thank you uh, that you have saved us, Lord, that we can boldly come before you now because we are your children. God, we ask that you open our hearts and our minds to this passage here today, Lord. I ask that I move myself, Lord, and you speak, God, through your holy scriptures. Lord, we thank you for this time together as a family. We thank you for this time together as we dive into your word. It's in your precious and holy name. Amen. 
So if you're taking notes, our first point of the day is the need for grace. And we see that in verses one through three. You see, whenever I teach on this passage, I have to ask people, because of the very first verse, it doesn't look good, right? Our situation is very bleak. And Paul's not just talking to the people, to the church in Ephesus when he's writing this. He's talking to now all believers. He's talking to everyone. And he starts out with, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. All right, so that's clearly saying, as the Bible teaches, that because of our sin, because of our rebellion against God, we are spiritually dead. We are separated from him. We saw that in the garden with Adam and Eve. We see that all throughout the Old Testament. Christ preached on it in his time here on earth, that because of our sin, because of our trespasses, we are dead. We're dead. There's nothing we can do. So he says, in which you previously lived. And then we see this three-pronged attack, right? These, these three ways of bondage that hold us down. Two from the outside, one from within. The first we see that in which you previously lived, in verse 2, according to the ways of this world. We live in a world that is inclined to sin. We live in a world that wants us to sin. The world itself is, is, is drawing us away from Christ, or for those non, not believing here today are drawing you towards itself and don't want you to see Christ, but the world itself is drawing you in with different ideologies, different philosophies, different religions. It is saying, hey, look at all this stuff. Don't look at Christ. And that's what the world wants. It wants you to look at everything else, but it does not want you to live and look to Christ because we are living in a fallen world. The scriptures themselves preach that the world itself is groaning for Christ to return. So we see that this first part in this, in this bondage to sin is the very world we live in is inclined towards sin. And then we get introduced to this, this, this character. So we see that the world we live in is a fallen world and it, and it is inclined to sin. And this is according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. That's the tail end of verse two. We're introduced to this spirit of the power of the air, this one that is working in the disobedient. Church family, that is, that is Satan. That is the enemy itself. And we know the scriptures teach that while God is sovereign and all authority is given to Christ, in this present time, Satan has been allowed to rule over. He has power. He has dominion. Now it is caged. It is leashed. But he is roaming. First Peter teaches that he's roaming like a lion, seeking who he may de devour. So we see that the very world we live in is inclined to sin. We see that there is a spirit working within this world that's working in the disobedient that is trying to draw us away from Christ. And that is the enemy. That is the deceiver. That is Satan himself. He is working to undo what God has done. He is trying to make it unfinished what Christ has finished. And if he can take as many people with him, when he goes down, he will. Because we know that ultimately Satan has not been defeated. Satan is defeated. 
He has no more power. That was taken from him by Christ on the cross. But he can still deceive. He still himself is a deceiver, and he can still take the oldest trick in the book that he has, takes the words of God and twists them so that we don't fully understand who God is. So we are bound by the world that's inclined to sin. We're bound by Satan because the Bible is very clear. It's either you are with God or you are not. So Paul right here is pretty much saying that if you are not with God, you are a worshiper of Satan. That's strong language that Paul is coming across. That's strong language that Paul is using. And then Paul kind of turns, because if we look, Paul in verse 3 turns it towards himself too, right? Now he's including himself. It seems like at first he was just talking to us the, or, the, or the church in Ephesus. But then he says, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. So we see this two pronged bondage from the world, from Satan. And then not only do we have to battle with those two, we have to battle with our very flesh. That our flesh itself wants its own desires, wants to be selfish, and wants to make itself greater than Christ. So we are in trouble. We are in trouble with these first three verses when it comes to the book of Ephesians in chapter 2. We're in trouble. We are in need of grace. Because if you look at it, there's nothing we can do, right? Because Paul starts out that we are what, church? We're dead. And what can a dead person do? Nothing. In the same way that thumb, though an inanimate object, it can't get itself out of that box. Church, we're dead. We were spiritually dead. There was absolutely nothing we could do because of our sin. And we are bound to the, the ways of the world. We're bound to the ways of Satan. We're bound to our own fleshly desires and carrying them out selfishly, making ourselves known, not making Christ known. And then we're given a title. We're given a title, and it's not a fun title to have our flesh and thoughts, and we're by nature, nature, the very essence of who we are, our very nature was children under wrath. You see, because of our sin, because of our rebellion against God, we were under the wrath of God, rightly so. We were under the wrath of God, and there was absolutely nothing that we could do. We were dead. We were stuck. We were helpless. We were by nature, our very essence of who we are, children under wrath, as the others were also. And if we stopped the sermon right there, this would be hands down the most depressing sermon that has ever been taught in Kataba's history, right? Because we just see that Paul is just so straightforward in our need how bad off we really were. Sometimes we don't realize it, that we were dead. There was absolutely nothing we can do. Nothing. That we were by nature, our very essence of who we are, children of wrath. 
We deserved the wrath of God. We earned the wrath of God because of our rebellion against God. And then you get to verse 4. Oh, praise the Lord for verse 4. And this gets into our second point, the power of grace. Our first point is that we see we have the need for grace because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Our second point is the power of grace. And we get these two beautiful words at the beginning of verse 4. I get chills every time I read them. Church family, say them with me. But God. Whoo! Yes, thank you. Now we get to the fun part, right? Now we get to the good part because I know you and, and you guys are some good Southern folk. And when you're, when you're talking to someone and you know, you're saying some nice things about someone and then you say, but, you know, all the nice things you said are about to disappear, right? And Paul does the same thing here, right? He, Paul's saying, hey, look, believers, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were walking in the way of the world. You were a worshiper of Satan. You were following your flesh. You were a child of wrath. There was nothing you could do. And God looked at you and it says, but God, God stepped in. God stepped in because, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. Amen. Yes, those two words, but God. You see, God saw us in our helpless state. He knew that there was nothing we could do to get rid of our sin, so he stepped in. Not so that we might be glorified, but because of his mercy, because of his great love that he had for a rebellious creation. God didn't have to step in. God chose to step in. He owed us nothing. We owed him everything, and the debt was too great to pay. But God, he sent his son, Jesus, to die upon the cross. He sent his son to live a perfect life, a life that we were supposed to live. To die on a cross that we deserve to die on. To be buried in our tomb. And then to be raised on the third day and to be ascended and to be standing at the right hand of the Father. And now because of that, we have the privilege to come before God himself and say, Abba, Father. Church, our sin was great, but Christ was greater. So at that point, the, the power of grace God steps in because of his rich mercy. You see, you have grace, which, is, which if, if you want a quick definition, is unmerited favor. Favor that you do not earn. It is unmerited. God gives it to us. Then you have mercy, which is not receiving something you do deserve. So we look at verses one through three, and we see that we deserve the wrath of God, yet what are we given? The grace of God. We deserve his wrath, yet we're given his unmerited favor. And this is done because of his great love for us. Because he loved us. 
while we were spitting in his face. God loved us enough to send his son Jesus to die for us. While we were in open rebellion against him, God loved us enough to send Christ to save us. That while we were dead in our trespasses, Christ came and God made us alive through Christ. And then, and then Paul's very clear. You are saved by what, church family? Grace. Grace. You are saved by the unmerited favor of God. And you see, the, the cool part is, is we, see this, we see this exchange now, right? We see we're, we're bound, uh, at first we were bound to the world, to Satan, to our very own flesh, and now we get the benefits of what it means to be a son and daughter of the Most High God. You see, not only did God save us in our rebellion, but he calls us now one of his own. Because it's not just that he saved us, like, hey, good for you, go on and, and do whatever you want to do now, you're saved. It's not just that, but he also raised us up with Christ and has seated us with Christ in the heavens, in Christ Jesus. There are, there are benefits to being a son and daughter of Christ, of the Most High God, that we are now raised up with him. We are seated. Imagine that. We were once children of wrath, and now we are seated with the Most High God. What a beautiful, beautiful transition we see in this passage. You are saved by grace. He has also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. And he has done this not so that we can boast upon ourselves, right? God is jealous for his glory. And he does not want anyone else to have his glory. He deserves all the glory, all the praise, all the honor. He deserves it all. Amen. And he says that so that in the coming ages, where we are now, he might display his immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. God saved you. God saved me so that he could show how amazing and awesome he is. And that we now get to be a part of that privilege. We get to be a part of God's glory and showing how amazing and awesome he is because church family, this is our testimony. This is who we were before Christ and this is who we are after Christ saved us. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and we have been made alive in Christ. All because God decided to step in, all because God decided to choose us. It had nothing to do with us. Praise the Lord. It had nothing to do with us and everything to do with him. So now in the ages to come, we can display his kindness in Christ Jesus to all we meet saying, look, this is who I was. I was a sinner. I, I deserved wrath, and God saved me. And honestly, if God can save me, God can save everyone. There's a reason why Paul says he's the chief sinner. That's because he's the chief sinner in his own life. Guess what? I am the chief sinner in my life. You are the chief sinner in your life. If God can save you, God can save anyone. Amen. We truly believe that, that there is nothing that the blood of Jesus Christ cannot fulfill. But church family, we do need to be careful because as we get into our third point, we see the results of grace. And Paul repeats himself. In verse five, he says that you are saved 
by grace. In verse eight, he repeats himself. And whenever Paul repeats himself, we need to take heed. We need to take notice because he does it a lot. It means something very important is happening. He says in verse eight, for you are saved by grace through faith and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift, not from works so that no one can boast. You see, Paul's repeating himself in verse five. He says you're saved by grace. In verse eight, he says you're saved by grace and goes even further and says it's not anything you did, right? You see, this passage blows a huge hole in the idea of a work-based salvation. And church family, and, and if you're here today and you don't know the saving grace of Christ, listen to this too. Because as Christians, sometimes we fall into a routine of saying, if I do this and I do that, if I go to church, if I read my Bible, then I'll earn more salvation. I'll be saved because of the things I do. And the world will definitely tell you, especially as a children's pastor, what I hear most when I ask children, because when they come to me and they say they want to be baptized, I don't want to say I grill them, but I ask them some tough questions. And I ask them, how are you saved? And a lot of times the answer I get is Jesus and. You know, as long as I'm a good person, as long as I, I do enough good things and I believe in Jesus, well, I'll be saved. That's not what the Bible teaches. Not at all. Thank goodness, not at all. Your good deeds are not enough to get rid of your sin. All the great things you have done in your life are not enough to get rid of your sin. But Jesus is enough. And the buck stops with him. So if you are a believer here today and you sometimes feel like you're getting in, stuck in the rut that I have to do A, B, C, D in order to be saved, get that mindset out. Know that your salvation has nothing to do with you. Your salvation has nothing to do with you and everything to do with Christ. That he is the one that saves you and he is the one that sustains you. And if you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, and you think, hey, I'm a pretty good person. I've done some pretty great stuff. You know, I, I go to homeless shelters. I give $5 to the guy on the corner. You know, I've, I bought a Chick-fil-A meal for someone. I've done a pay it forward. Um, I shared a post on Facebook, right? All those things. If I can tell you right now, that if you look at the verses through the first verses of this passage, you see that's not enough. It's not enough. And I don't know about you, but I don't want eternity to be left up to maybe. I hope I did enough. When I die and I stand before the grand scale, I, I hope, I hope that my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. I can tell you they don't. I can tell you we are a depraved people. We are a sinful people but Christ is enough. Christ died for you. Christ loves you. Christ came and lived the life you had to live. Christ died the death you deserved. Christ was buried in your tomb, and Christ was raised because of his faithfulness to the Father. The Father said, yes, that is my son. I am well pleased in him. I will raise him, and he will sit at the right hand of me, and he shall be the Savior of the world. Amen. If you're here today and you don't know the saving grace, of Christ, 
I beg you, come to him. Take the weight off of the good deeds that you're trying to do. And that's for believers too. Take that weight off and just know that your salvation is secured in Christ and Christ alone. There is no Jesus and there is just Jesus. And that is what Ephesians 2 is telling us. That it is by the power of God, by his unmerited favor, and through the work of his son Jesus upon the cross, that we are saved. It's not anything we do. And so there's a reason why it's not anything we do, because if I could save myself, I know for a fact I would stand before you, hey, check me out. Look how great I am. I have saved myself from sin. Who needs God? I got me. I know I would do that, yet I can't. I can only stand before you and say I was dead in my trespasses and sins. I was a slave to Satan. I was a slave to my flesh. I wanted to do what I wanted to do and I didn't care what God thought. Yet God saved me. I realized that I was a sinner and I realized that I needed a savior and that I couldn't get rid of my sin on my own. And that it was Jesus. Jesus came into my life and he saved me. He turned my life around. And now my salvation isn't dependent upon anything I do, but it is secured in who he is and his work upon the cross and his resurrection. Church family, we have no, nowhere to boast of our salvation except in Christ. That is who we point to. That is who we look to. If someone asks you, why do you have such joy in your life? You say, Jesus. If you have such peace in your life, you say, Jesus. If you say, why in the world can you smile in today's age? You say, because I have an amazing Savior, and he saved you, and let me tell you about him. Let me tell you what he's done for me. Church family, no, and I repeat, no testimony is boring. Every testimony is a miracle of what Christ has done for us. And we boast in him, and we shout his praise, and we shout his glory, and we, everyone we meet, we, we remind them of who Jesus is in our life and what he's done for us. But we do see this cool transition because we're given a new title, right? In verses one through three, we were given this title that we were children of wrath, that our very nature was that we were children of wrath. We deserve the wrath of God. And then what? Seven verses later, because of the great work of Christ, we get this, for we are his workmanship. What a transition. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Now let's take a real close look at that verse, because we can sometimes misuse that verse and say, hey, the good works is in there, and we got to do the good works in order to be saved. That's not what Paul is saying. He's first saying we are his workmanship. We are his, we are his crown jewel created in Christ Jesus, saved by Christ Jesus for good works. Let's look at the order. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We don't do the good works to be saved. We do the good works because we are saved. And these good works have been placed before us before the foundation of the earth. God knew he was gonna save you before you were you. 
He knew that he was going to save you from your sin and that he was going to use you to do the good works that he has called you to do to further his kingdom. Let us do the good work that God has prepared for us to do. Church, may we always remember who we are in Christ. May our testimony ring loud that we were sinners in need of a savior and that savior was Jesus. May we be his workmanship. May we do the good works that he has prepared for us to do. May we go out and proclaim Jesus to everyone we meet. And may, may we be a shining light of Christ everywhere we go. In a second, I'm gonna have Pastor Aaron come up for just a time of invitation. Um, and I, you don't know me that well. I don't, know, I don't know you that well. I don't know where you are in your walk with Christ. But if you're here today and you're saddled by the burden of I'm just not doing enough, know that Ephesians 2 teaches that don't have that burden upon yourself. Christ is enough. Take rest in him. And if you're here today and you're still living under, under, under the verses of 1 through 3 and you don't know the saving faith, the saving grace of God, I ask you look in your heart and realize that there's nothing you can do to get rid of your sin. There's nothing you can do. But God can. And if you just look to his son and you just, you just cry out to him, I can tell you God will save you. Church family, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much. God, we thank you for who you are. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. And God, we thank you for just the passage that you've given us, Lord, in Ephesians 2, showing that our testimony is not boring or, 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 or something just simple, God, but it is a miracle of you. God, that in, in, in our trespasses and our sins, that we were spiritually dead, you chose to save us. And God, that we go from being children of wrath to being your workmanship, Lord, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So God, we ask that if we have the burden of trying to do enough to earn your salvation. Lord, may we get rid of that thought right now. God, may you take it from our mind knowing that Jesus is enough. And Lord, if we have folks here today that just don't know the saving grace of Christ, God, may, you, may the Holy Spirit work in them. May the Holy Spirit drag them towards Jesus. God, and may they feel the freedom of what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It is in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen.